Hi, this is Billy Rankin, and you're listening to the Avalanche Hour Podcast. Welcome to episode 3.5 of the Avalanche Hour Podcast. I'm your host, Caleb Merrill. The Avalanche Hour podcast is proudly presented by TAS Gazex, an avalanche of solutions, as well as our good friends at Ten Barrel Brewing. Drink beer outside. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge, and news amongst people who have a curious fascination with avalanches. If you're just finding this podcast, welcome. You know, some people like to jump right into the newest podcast when they find a new new series, or they go back to the beginning and start from the beginning. I would welcome you to do either. You know, I think the production of the podcast has gotten quite a bit better over the, the last couple seasons, so feel free to just jump in right here, or, or go back to the archives and check out some of my early shows. There's lots of good information in all of them. Uh, I travel around and I interview avalanche professionals, whether they're guides, ski patrollers, uh, avalanche educators, or forecasters, as well as seek out folks that have been involved in avalanches, near misses, or accidents that are willing to tell their story. And um, I'm hoping that this is a platform where where people can can feel free to share that information, share their stories, so that other people can learn from from the mistakes of others, as well as just learn from the mentorship of of the folks that have been doing this for a while here. So welcome to the show if you're new. I put out episodes on the 1st and 15th of every month, and I tend to gather my content throughout the month of October as I don't really have enough time to, to be running around and, and getting interviews done throughout the busy winter season. So I've got a bunch of interviews in the bank for this season. Really excited to share all those with, with y'all. Um, but a big key to this podcast as well is, is the listener and community interaction. So if you have an idea for a show, if you want to interact with me, if you want to be on the show, please reach out. You can reach me at the Avalanche Hour Podcast at gmail.com or you can find a contact form on my website www.theavalanchehour.com so join the conversation i certainly encourage you to do so i just got an email from barry from lake tahoe this morning or last night rather and barry had a suggestion that he wanted to hear from an emergency physician or emergency room physician or wilderness emergency physician about um, post-burial care for for avalanche victims um, or patients that have been buried in an avalanche. So I'm doing my darndest to to get some folks on the line that can talk about that. 
um, and I think that's a great idea. So that's just one example of how people are reaching out and, and joining the conversation. So thanks, Barry. We'll get that out here within the next couple months. Hope everybody had a great Thanksgiving. Um, really pretty good Thanksgiving storm system across much of the western United States. Uh, seeing lots of posts on social media of areas where there was old, faceted, weak snow sitting on the ground. And this latest storm kind of tipped the scales. Lots of widespread natural and human-triggered avalanches, some of which seem to be triggering remotely. If you're out there and seeing activity, tag us in your social media post. We'd love to see what you're dealing with in your favorite zones. We are at the Avalanche Hour podcast on Instagram and Facebook. Don't really do the whole tweeting thing um, yet, but who knows? Maybe I'll turn over a new leaf at some point here. I've been hearing lots of friends and colleagues talk about not riding in areas that previously were holding snow, that old snow. Seems like pretty good advice. Not to paint with too broad of a brush here, but it seems like it's a good time to continue to be patient. Maybe head out and practice your avalanche rescue skills with your touring partners. And maybe even come up with a detailed terrain atlas and run list for your favorite riding areas. It's all part of making it a systems-based approach to recreating in the backcountry in, in an avalanche environment. If you are getting out there, I, I, would, I would certainly... Uh, steer you towards choosing conservative terrain until you have a good idea of of what the snowpack is looking like in in your local zones of course check out your local avalanche forecast center for the latest advisories i think most of the centers are up and running as of the release of this episode uh, some of those are, ju are just starting to crank out december 1st here so and i would add a little plug to submit observations it's so important for local forecast centers to get input from the riders that are utilizing their zone and their forecasts. And it doesn't have to be, you don't have to go out and dig a snow pit and enter a snow pit to create an observation. Um, you don't have to see unstable snow. You could, you could just submit an observation of, of skiing in an area and, and if you did not notice any signs of instability, then that's a great observation as well. So just a, just a plug to be interactive with your community, your local, riding community and, and avalanche centers. Today's episode features Billy Rankin of Irwin Guides. He's going to introduce himself once the interview starts here, but for those of you who don't know about Irwin Guides, they have got it going on. I tell you what, they're based in Crested Butte, Colorado. They offer local and international guided trips and really everything from cat skiing to backcountry skiing. They've got some rafting, climbing, hiking, fly fishing, year-round guiding operation. Billy gives us a glimpse into what goes on specifically the ins and outs of running their ski guiding operation. It was really great to hear about some of the intricacies of their permit area, some of the keys to their risk management, and how they deal with uncertainty in the snowpack. Okay, so crack a cold 10 barrel brew. I might suggest the Pray for Snow American Strong Ale, where they donate 10% of the proceeds to protect our winners. So crack a beer, listen to our interview with Billy Rankin of Irwin. Oh, if, if you're driving, don't crack a beer. Wait till you get to your destination. 
Hope you enjoy. Houston, uh, say again, please. Houston, we have a problem. Head down. Billy, welcome to the show, man. Thanks for taking the time to sit down. Thank you. Pleasure. Yeah, it's awesome being Crested Butte. You guys have a beautiful spot here. It's pretty cool. A little paradise for sure. Yeah. Well, Billy, why don't you go ahead and give us your background and how you kind of, the roadmap that you took to get to where you are today. Sounds good. Uh, you know, not going too far back. I was an East Coast kid, like a lot of us. Um, grew up in New York, skiing and snowboarding uh, in New Hampshire, Vermont a fair bit. Early days of snowboarding, mid-80s. And, uh, you know, started coming out west a little bit and got a peak at Colorado when I was young and, you know, saw the mountains headed west and look back. Um Sophomore year at college, instead of going to college, did a null semester course, which was a big inspiration for me. Ended with a winter section in the Gravant Range, mm -hmm. winter camping and avalanche education and digging Quincy's and doing the whole thing. And I was like, oh, yeah. And uh, bought my Telemark ski boots and a pair of Asne's 205, 208s maybe, leather boots and long skis and moved to Crested Butte where – telemark skiing was still the thing there's a few there's a few telemarkers still <laughs> i think it's gonna make a comeback all sure. right we'll see everything we'll, comes around again we'll see um so yeah moved to crested butte in 92 92 93 which maybe some of those listening will remember that was a big year i thought that was the norm i think crested Butte got 350 inches and the high country got you know four or five six hundred it was a big year and just fell in love with the mountains started skiing and Riding, start backcountry skiing, and like many, you know, had some big near misses and kind of learned by fire, but quickly got into some avalanche courses. Um, you know, started raft guiding as a professional, and then uh, slowly started ticking away at the boxes, becoming an EMT, getting avalanche education, getting lost in the mountains, learning lessons. And uh, worked for Outward Bound in uh, 94 or 95. Worked for Outward Bound was a big part of my profession for many years, about a decade plus. Working uh, semester courses up in Alaska, a lot of winter courses. So a lot of my early winter guiding and avalanche exposure as a professional was managing students in a winter environment. So, of course, the avalanche piece was there, but also winter survival, staying warm, winter camping the whole bit. So it was a good good risk management piece early on. And, um, yeah, Crested Butte had always been home but worked out. I worked for Crested Butte Mountain Guides, which... Uh, it was a really early operation here, and that was a really good legacy of its own from, you know, Jean Paviard as Adventures to the Edge to Alan Bernholtz with Crested Butte Mountain Guides, you know, moved on to Jason Simons-Jones. I know a lot of familiar names out there to a lot of people. Um, that was always a really longstanding guide service in Crested Butte. And skied the backcountry. You were skiing out in the Anthracite Range a lot when there's only, you know, a few dozen people skiing out there, and not everyone had snowmobiles, but I had a tow rope, and we'd get towed out there, and go ski the anthracites and uh we go over to the Irwin lodge afterwards and uh drink beer and have an app pray there which if you were anywhere near that area that's what you did and they had their cat skiing operation going on and i'd say hey do you guys need any any guides and you know i must have been 23 24 and they'd shoo me away every other year i'd come back you need any guides and they'd shoo me away again <laughs> and finally after being persistent and getting some more experience in avalanche education i got hired on with the Irwin lodge as a young young cat ski guide and that's where i started mechanized ski guiding for the first time and 
got my first exposure to uh, avalanche mitigation, at least with explosives. And I worked for there for three years. I think that was 98 to 2001, two, and the lodge closed. That's a whole story of its own, but a hard business to run. Um, big lodge in the middle of nowhere, and it closed down. And uh, I was, you know, just bummed, crushed as a young ski guy. Had it all made, you know, and... Uh, so I, I got jumped on the Crestbeat Ski Patrol, which wasn't a, an immediate desire, but immediately loved it. Got to incorporate medical skills with the avalanche piece, and, and you know, after backcountry ski guiding and working as a mechanized guide, uh, patrolling was a nice aspect to, to see how the avalanche forecasting worked in that arena. And again, I'd always been a, a skier at Crestbeat Mountain, and the mountain's just phenomenal. Those who've skied it, especially in a good year, know it's just like nowhere like anywhere else, or just as good as. The, the, the best so but being on that ski patrol for almost 10 years was phenomenal had a lot of mentors which i know you know finding mentors in this world sometimes is hard but uh you know again uh i was on my path but a lot of 60 year olds calling it tg and you know talking about size four slides and 72 and three and you know that's pretty cool and those who've been on patrol with some old timers know that value of so that was great. And at the same time, uh, I'd become an avalanche forecaster for the Crested Butte Avalanche Center. And again, a lot of a lot of side stories here that could become their own episodes. But sure. uh, the Crested Butte Avalanche Center has had a great legacy here as well, starting out as basically taking the CAIC report and reading it here and putting our own little obs on it and then really became its own legit center. So I was an early forecaster for the Crested Butte Center. So I learned about a little about writing and public bulletins and uh, putting out a, a daily bulletin. So that was a really good piece. And Was that concurrent to ski patrolling? Yeah. Yeah, there was a, I'm trying to remember the exact overlap, but I was doing some ski patrolling. I was forecasting before ski patrol a couple of years or right when it started. Um, and then uh, started working at the Irwin, Irwin Guides came about, and there's a lot of names over the years from C.S. Irwin to Irwin Backcountry Guides to Irwin Guides to Eleven, which we'll get into more, but... I always kept my eye up at Irwin, what was going on up there, because that land sat vacant for many years. When I say vacant, you know, no snowcat operation. And, but the lodge uh, was still there. The lodge was there. Nothing happening up there. You know, a lot of backcountry skiing and good, good deep skiing, backcountry skiing. And uh, so when the lodge opened up or, or there were, it was bought, I kind of just kept my finger on the pulse and uh, got hired back on pretty early on as the snow safety director. And uh, we had to re apply for the ski permits for the foresters had to get uh explosives license again so i was the one filling out the applications for the state and federal explosives permits and writing snow safety plans and risk management plans which was a perfect place in my profession at that point at that point i was living and breathing in the avalanche world and it was a good step up and a perfect time for my life and you know that was about 10 years ago now and there was a few years of overlapping with the crestview avalanche center uh ski patrol and Irwin all at the same time, and then Irwin slowly became a full-time gig. So, you know, all the same time, um, yeah, working and playing, guiding summers in the mountains, and oh, we'd been a bit of a jack-of-all-trade in the summers, climbing, boating, mountaineering, biking, but uh, winters have always been the consistent part, and being a lover of backcountry skiing and avalanche work. Right on. That's a pretty, yeah. that's a nice myriad of experience from patrolling to forecasting to guiding to education. Uh, you yeah. Got, you got the basis covered there. Too. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I have been teaching avalanche course for a long time and uh, I still love being an educator. And I think most guides, you know, 
lot of guys at least agree that education's you know a big part of it. So it's yeah, long lines. I still stay involved. I'm pretty involved these days with the you know the big pro rec split and yep. what's going on and uh, psych to help in that whole process as well. All right. Well, I should say we're sitting in the Irwin building in Crested Butte, and let me tell you this: this isn't like a this isn't a guide service run out of a, somebody's garage or basement here. This is a super professional looking operation. Um, so tell us a little bit about the Irwin Guides programs, what y'all offer and um, where do you operate, how big the permit area is, more specifically to what's going on here at Crested Butte with the skiing, but some of the yeah. international stuff as well. Yeah, so Irwin Guides is a is a guide service in Crested Butte, and we are, are and really were a continuation of the Crested Butte Mountain Guides. And actually, I should say that differently. We Irwin Guides really started from the cat ski operation. It was the first iteration, of the continuation of the Irwin Lodge. So cat skiing is what really started Irwin Guides. And then over the years, we were interested in backcountry skiing and doing summer guiding as well. And so we were really good partners for years with the Crested Butte with Crested Butte Mountain Guides. And most of us worked for both operations as many guides. They keep their feet in as many pools as they can or buckets or whatever I'm getting at there. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, we were all working for it together. And over the years, it just made sense for, you know, Irwin Guides to acquire Crested Butte Mountain Guides. And, you know, basically it was about the permits because Crested Butte Mountain Guides had a lot of p- permits and user days in the forest. So they became one, and that was probably six years ago. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, Irwin Guides still has a snowcat operation. And, uh Offer backcountry ski touring, and we are, you know, a major avalanche course provider. You know, rec rec ones and twos and rescue courses, and so we're an airy course provider. And I want to say this year we have twenty seven or twenty eight courses on the schedule. So people flock here from all over the state. It's a great venue for avalanche education. Mm-hmm. You know, um, so we teach a lot of courses, and then some are full operations from hiking, biking, mountaineering, rock climbing, fishing rafting paddleboarding so we try to do it all which is fun and interesting but challenging in the same vein so mm-hmm. yeah it's great and then you know we can go there as well but connected with the 11 experience which is more of that hospitality brand but we're we guide uh, we guide for 11 as well which is kind of these longer term guests coming in so in 11 is a, a a lodge down the road not the Irwin lodge right correct yeah and i know our story is confusing to some even even some people who still work with the company can't <laughs> get it quite straight um but yeah 11 is basically a hospitality brand and uh 11's all the same companies so Irwin guys and 11 are the same company different you know branches of the company and 11 is the hospitality brand so we have a beautiful lodge a scarp ridge lodge in crested butte in the town of crested butte and that was the first property of 11 where the snowcat pulled right in front of the lodge. Guests got in and traveled up on a Tucker snowcat, a beautiful Tucker snowcat, up to Irwin, 45-minute commute. And that's where they'd go cat skiing for the day and come down to town and stay in the lodge. And ideally, they were staying or are staying for four or five, seven days and and, and enjoying other activities as well. Mm-hmm. And 11 over the years has uh, grown and still growing. Um, we're heli skiing in Iceland, have a chalet in the Tarentaise Valley in France. Those are our three ski locations and, you know, again, down in Chile and the Bahamas. So that's quite the story of its own, and but exciting and, and helping create some year-round uh, and career guiding paths for many guides, which is really nice, including myself. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's a really, really fun venture over the years and fun to be a part of. 
You guys still have the Tucker? Oh, yeah. The Tucker Snowcat is you know, a phenomenal vehicle. A little shout out to the Rogue Valley, Oregon, where they're made. Oh, so yeah, yeah. From, yeah. Yeah, it's great. Good. I, I met <laughs> some of those guys. They've been through a few times. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if they've said it, you know, publicly that this is probably one of the nicest or pimped out tuckers nice. we've ever seen. I mean, because we had the we bought the snowcat and built the built the cabin and leather seats and surround sound and a thirty something inch flat screen and you know it's it's basically a limo tracked limousine and uh, it's pretty awesome. So it's a nice commute, a nice way to commute up to Irwin. So so what goes on at the Irwin Lodge then? <sighs> Nothing. It's uh, sadly sad affairs. Just sitting kind of. Uh-huh. It's a skeleton. Uh, we use it for storage yeah. and, uh, you know, maybe some uh, some rodent parties going on there, maybe <laughs> some pine martens and such. But, uh, yeah, uh, there is potentially plans in the future to, to renovate it and um, event center. It would be a great venue for events and weddings. Weddings were big up there in the summer. Mm-hmm. Um, weddings, even, you know, in my mind, would be able to do uh, as an educational venue would be great to be able to have a classroom and teach woofers and avalanche courses and even some corporate retreats. But that's way down the line, if anything. So it's kind of sure. sad because, again, those who've been there, it's, it was a big legacy, yeah. you know, from the late 70s all the way till 2002. So, all right. So, Billy, what are some of the weather and snowpack trends here and specifically in your um, in your guiding permitted area? So good question. Uh, a lot of people know that Irwin is a, you know, a meteorological or weather anomaly. It's a, it's, it's located in a perfect position and we get a lot of snow. It's all about orographic location. So Crested Butte sits in a little bit of a rain shadow of Irwin. And for Crested Butte to get those storms, we really need a, a like a west, southwest storm direction where Irwin benefits from, you know, multitude of directions. We do good with the southwest flow, a straight zonal and probably the best on the Northwest, but we get it good from all directions. We're surrounded uh, by great, you know, the Ruby range is a great orographic barrier. We just get pounded and, you know, any storm that makes it through the Wasatch, it just goes across the Ngapagre Highlands and really the Ruby range is the first range it hits or the West Elks and gets lifted and we get amazing orographic effect there. So, you know, our, our technical average on the last seven years or nine years is a 430 inches. Um, and that's with a, a 230 inch year last year. I'd say a more accurate is probably about five to 550 a year. So wow. we definitely rival, you know, the Wasatch and definitely Steamboat and Wolf Creek. We definitely get some of the most snow in the state. And this is still Colorado we're talking. Yeah, it's early in Colorado, <laughs> and you know, again, uh, maybe some locals who back under Skeet Irwin are, are getting pissed at me right now. <laughs> but it's you know, it's no secret around here anymore. But yeah, it snows a lot. We'll wake up in town with six, seven inches and. You know, 10 miles to the west, it's, you know, 12, 14, 18. Yeah. Uh, you know, especially with the classic classic pattern starts, you know, a, a classic storm is the southwest, moist start to the storm, 8 9%, get the strong zonal flow. And then we get the northwest finisher, and sometimes it just grades out to 5 4 5%. And what do they say? We'll make it 3 to 4 little orographic showers. Sometimes we'll get 12 to 14 um, overnight, that little northwest, we call it the friendly finish. And, oh, man, it's it snows a lot up there. So it's, it's a great piece. And, um, and the people who skied up there and caught a really good day know that. So that's a pretty cool thing. And some years, and as far as the snowpack structure, some years we're looking really at like more of an intermountain pack, mm-hmm. um, more than a continental pack. And, you know, we see that on the Elk Mountains a fair bit. When you're skiing close to the town of Crested Butte, you are definitely in a classic continental snowpack and, and ideally behaving like so and 
and you get out in the high country and these days obviously with snowmobiles people could buzz up many different drainages and, and get up into the northern or western parts of the zone by Irwin or Paris Divide and Marble and Schofield and and that same effect I talked about now you're into a two three meter snowpack where it was just a meter deep in town and and I maybe we're not worried about those basal layers anymore and um, you know it's a tough game to play but if you're savvy, you know when to play that game and when not to. But uh, sometimes we can reap the benefits of almost a inner mountain pack. So it's great. It's a nice, nice little anomaly that uh, always surprises us. And you know, over the years, the CAIC is is always amazed to hear our snowfalls. And Joel Gratz now he loves forecasting for us, and he's seen it come through. And uh, so it's fun. People know that uh, know that little weather pattern is pretty cool. Yeah, it seems yeah. like you have benefit from that, and your your customers must benefit as well. Yeah, absolutely. The the ones who know definitely know. That's great. So, how many backcountry guides and Caskey guides and and avalanche educators does Irwin Guides employ? That's a good question. Off the top of my head, ballpark. Yeah, we're talking twenty five thirty. Huh. Um, you know, that's including all the on call and part time. You know, a lot of the winter guides. To make it a full, some just do the cat ski operation. There's mechanized guides on the cat, and they're doing four or five days a week. Um, some will do the snow cat and work in the backcountry and teach avalanche courses. So the combo of all three allows some full time work, which is nice. And it's a nice diversity. We we really um, respect the basically the ADD qualities of guides. And if God, if you could teach avalanche courses, get out in the backcountry skiing and teach them. Or guide some cat skiing. What a what a nice combo. So sure. So yeah, there, you know we have maybe twelve more full timey or maybe eight, ten full time, four or five part time, and then a handful of on call guides. Even a couple of patrollers mm-hmm. will come work their days off if we get really busy. So it's it's a nice team. Some of those guides will continue work in the summer for us um, as well. Some will go to Iceland and work on the heli ski operation and. Uh, and connect to some of them go to France and work a little bit from France, even though we're mostly using local French guides for that operation. But so the combo of properties and the different offerings really help um, create, you know, the guide team. Sure. A lot of AMGA guides or IFMGA yeah, guides? Yeah, we have a great mix. That's, you know, probably one of the coolest parts of our snowcat operation, really our whole operation is, is the combination of the diversity of our skill sets. We have, right. we have a handful of IFMGA guides and guides on the AMGA track. Um, working with us in the winter and a lot of those folks go off in the summer and may play in the bigger mountains and more glaciated terrain um, but they love coming back in the winter um, in the same vein we've had you know longtime ski patrollers as well come in and you know they both bring their own set of skills and values to the team and at the end of the day uh, it is really what makes our team really strong and uh, really rich is that diversity it's not just a single track into our, our operation so it's it's kind of cool at the end of the day sometimes challenging but anyone who's managed guides knows that's just an inherent challenge as is sure so that, that's all well said billy and I, I i agree i think there's value to that diversity and in, in backgrounds and different operational backgrounds especially um so i can imagine on a busy weekend you guys got a lot of programs going out just give us kind of your typical saturday in february like what how many programs are headed out yeah you know on a given day you'll have anywhere between three to seven guides on the cat operation depending if we're running one cat or two snow cats we're still two snow cats the full day at like 20 skiers and we'll put a snow safety team on slope most days at least midwinter when we're Going towards or getting isothermal in the spring, we could usually lose a snow safety team as it's a little easier of a forecast problem. 
But we have snow safety team. So, yeah, it could be five to seven guides at Irwin. And then we could have two to three avalanche course instructors and two to three backcountry ski trips, even four, maybe a hut trip out doing some of the hut to hut. And so it's a lot going on on a given day. And, you know, even within a given day of operations, especially when it's game on midwinter, you know, just the the local observation exchange within our own company is phenomenal of mm. getting to talk with a cat operation who may be throwing explosives on a given day and our backcountry guides digging profiles in a different valley and our other guides skiing something over somewhere else so just our own little info hex so to say is, is pretty strong and um a lot of guides really like that when they come to work for us is the is the strong team aspect to uh to the avalanche forecasting problem they're you know even the backcountry guides who are going out by themselves get to be part of the larger avalanche community even within our company and and then crested butte unique because we have our local avalanche center and we have the ski area so it's a pretty strong avalanche community overall but yeah, even within our own company we have that diversity on a given day and we could help each other we're scratching our heads about a persistent week later or something and mm-hmm. it's great to have that uh that peer interaction a lot daily. of heads in the snow yeah yeah with some different tools and some a lot of different applications All on right. a given day so does everybody come together in the morning for a guide meeting, whether you're cat skiing or backcountry skiing? No, not not really. It'd be great. We've talked about that. Um, the cat operation, we just leave early. We're out at the door at 7, hopping on snowmobiles. Mm. Um, so the cat operation, you know, like many operations, we're, we're doing our own little morning meeting up there. Backcountry guides are doing their own AM forecasting and assessment, you know, deal. And, uh, and same with the avalanche course providers. At the end of the day, we do share OBS and also even different platforms, you know, that cat operations using its own platform and the backcountry guys are using more of just a narrative um, observation, but we're all sharing our OBS every day, which is nice and, uh, and get to discuss between the team. But very often we'll call each other the night before, like, you know, a lot of people do and say, what are you thinking today? Where are you going? Where are you not going? You think it's gonna be reactive or stubborn? And it's fun to have different, different people to talk to and, uh, and brains to pick. That's what it's all yeah. about. So do you have, so you said you do share that information. Do you, do you all use a Google Docs thing or are you talking about InfoX as yeah. it's available? Or? Well, that's its own story. I know InfoX is coming to the States <laughs> right? and actually we're steward. It's going to come talk to us. But we've been, we went down the road with John Snook, which I think a lot of people know John and uh, we call it SnookNet. Mm-hmm. Um, nothing official there, but John's created a wonderful uh, platform for us, kind of custom made database. So, it's been great. It's been really good for us, and it's got a nice workflow. It's web-based, and we're using photo overlays for a lot of our avalanche work. Um, our avalanche paths, you know, are more, you know, five, eight hundred feet, maybe a thousand feet. We're not seeing the, we're not dealing with the two, three thousand foot avalanche paths like the San Juans, and mm-hmm. so mapping software and Google Earth interactions aren't as useful for us. We're doing photo overlays and drawing in avalanches and shot placements and ski cuts and even ski and boot packing. So that was a big part of our program to see where we've worked our terrain over or not. And, and that's been really a big part of it. But we built full weather and snowpack observations and avalanche problems all around this kind of nice workflow. So we're using that. And our backcountry guys are kind of doing more of the Google group, more narrative piece, maybe taking photos or videos and and using some different third-party profile software. So it is a little bit of a mishmash, which I know is pretty standard out there, in, at least the U.S., so, Billy, do you all share that this a lot of these observations with the community and the Avalanche Center? Like, or do you? I know that some operations feel like some of that information is a little bit proprietary. 
We're we're pretty wide open. Uh, sometimes to the point where maybe too much, but I've always I've always been a proponent, especially as an educator, but as a professional and guy, I'd always been the first one to say, "Hey, you know, I had a close call out there. Everyone should know about it." And, and we've really followed that into a professional standard too. So we send our ops straight straight into both Avalanche Centers, the Crested Butte Avalanche Center, and the CAIC. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, we don't. At least Irwin guys doesn't enter into their database. Um, we send them basically it's a PDF document, and they'll pick and choose. And I know they're happy to get whatever they get. Sure. But we're a pretty solid observer for them, sending them, you know, daily obs. And then same with our backcountry guys; they send it too. And in our backcountry PM form, you know, it's a pretty standard observation format of weather, snowpack, avalanche obs. And then we have a little line at the bottom that says, "Hey, not to be shared with the avalanche center." And that's where it's like, "Oh man, Joe couldn't ski and." holy shit, I got scared today, kind of think I made a bad call, you know. Right. So we do still have hold a little bit close to our chest on maybe some of that uh, more risk management of the day. But sure. but we're pretty good when we have, whether they're close calls and your misses or not, you know, we, we share avalanche observations. And, mm-hmm. and we found out over the years, you know, we're not trying to hide it from our guests either. You know, we've learned that guests, most guests, you know, they like knowing that it's risky and they're paying for that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we don't use the word safe. It's, it's levels of risk and they know we're managing risk every day so i think it's i think it's good to to be out there out front transparent as possible yeah absolutely so you mentioned that you have a dedicated snow safety team at least out with the, the cat ski operation Correct. daily or almost daily um, when necessary that must be so nice um and maybe you could just talk about what their role is and how they're going about gathering data and then um, sharing that information with the guides in the field yeah it's a great piece and yeah, we feel really lucky we're able to do that. Again, we're mechanized skiing on a continental snowpack. And, uh, you know, my first level three course was with Carl Clausen and Jean Paviard. And, you know, early on, you know, I asked Carl Clausen, he's showing slides of people skiing like three turns apart on 40-degree stuff up in the Canadian Rockies. And it's like, man, we don't do that in Colorado. You know, I'm a young snowcat guy. How do you do it? He goes, you know, I would never be a mechanized ski guide on a continental snowpack. Good luck. <laughs> and over the years, almost 20 years ago, that one stuck with me. So having a snow safety team and having an explosives program is a really nice thing to have in our back pocket. Um, we have a pretty small tenure, about 1,000 acres, 1,100 acres, and uh, but we have a lot of steep terrain. And in general, we ski pretty aggressively. Um, we like to ski the steeps and stay on our terrain. And because we're not skiing a 10,000-acre tenure and just relying on forecasting alone, um, we could usually reduce that uncertainty pretty well, especially with explosives. So overall, well, with the snow safety team, yeah, they go out on a given day. And uh, what they're what they're doing on a given day depends. They could be very much working in a ski patrol setting, you know, mitigating a, a storm slab or a wind slab that's pretty easy, whether ski cutting or throwing some hand charges and uh, an opening train for the guide team. You know, we do use uh, a green, yellow, red, you know, uh, open, closed or standby. We're now calling it evaluate versus standby. Mm. And that's been the point of a lot of contentious conversations amongst our guides and, and other visiting professionals. Of, oh, man, either open it or close it. The yellow is a gray area. And, and over the years, I've really defended it and said, hey, we have a snow safety team out there in 1,000 acres and explosives. And um, we feel like we have the the program in place and the procedures in place to really effectively use that yellow, that evaluator standby terrain. 
And so you, you could potentially open a yellow run during the day if there's a qualifier on it and the snow safety team is good with it and all the guides agree. Is that what you're saying? Correct. Yeah. And, and, and the art of that application has been the point over the years of how to really apply that. And, you know, so that snow safety team, especially during a storm cycle, that's usually the snow safety team's first priority is try to get some of that yellow terrain open. And, you know, maybe that's terrain that a guide team in a normal operation would go to uh, anyway. And it was just the lead guy would maybe inch in a little bit, maybe dig, maybe throw some more ski cuts. Um, but we have that snow safety team. So, hey, let's send them there first to do that um, and, and tell them it's open. Um, so we will make that call in the field. It's a radio call, but it's a consensus call. So the snow safety team will call over and say, hey. We've just been through sunset left, threw some ski cuts in, no cracking, minor, you know, propagation or, you know, six-inch wind slabs, whatever the obs are, and say, we're comfortable going from standby to open. And the ski team, we're getting obs too. They're like, we're seeing similar things. I'm okay with that too. I'm like, great. Hey, dispatch, sunset left has gone from standby to open. So very redundant communication, but we're comfortable with that over the radio. And uh, it's worked out pretty well. Um but before we go out there, we do make a very conscious decision about what do we need to do that day to go from yellow to green. Not just like, let's see how it goes on slope. It's like, hey, we need ski cuts today. Hey, we need shots. Hey, we need just obs from an adjacent slope or representative terrain or that test slope. Um, so we decide. You Some know, sort of predefined qualifier. A qualifier, not just like, let's see, but this is what it yeah. needs. And, and we try to... We do get consensus about with that with the team in the morning meeting of what what's needed to 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 go there. And you know, when if there's too much bickering or can't find that consensus, we will just close it and consider it the next day. So we have enough terrain usually to go to where we don't have to stress over it too much. But so that's the classic snow safety team, and what they like to do is on a big day, and sometimes the the guide team is just following the snow safety team around all day when it's game on, and you know. We, we've come up, we use strategic mindsets, which we've adopted, which I know a lot of operations has from Roger Atkins, original work. And um, I know there's a new version floating around. I just talked to Don Sheriff about the mitig, you know, what is it? mindsets for mitigators. It's a new mm -hmm. one. You have to look at that. Anyway, uh, that helped us a lot because we've kind of defined like when we're in entrenchment, what does that look like for us? And we've, we've learned how to like define that and operate in those zones. And that's, or what zones we can operate in and where the guide team follows the snow safety team around. On other ends, if it's, you know, not as game on of a storm day, maybe it's more of a persistent, you know, lingering persistent slab problem. You know, the snow safety team may just be out digging all day, whether it's a couple big profiles or dozens of small quick ones to try to find, the, you know, the distribution of a, of a persistent weak layer and really look at the sensitivity and doing a lot of ECTs and PSTs and really digging on that end of things a little bit more, um, maybe just probing through a slope to see if where that crust is distributed or not. And so, yeah, so, you know, and we have some players who don't love digging and they like to throw bombs and explosives and some aren't that good or don't throw explosives. They want to dig all day. So we'll try to put the right players out on the right days yeah. and, and utilize the team strength, which is kind of fun. Um, so hey. that that work it varies day to day, but it's nice to have that snow safety team, and it's a it's a huge part of our forecasting, um, you know, process. That's awesome. Um, 
are those is that, are those teams those guides that are out as snow safety teams are they traveling just on at gear are they jumping rides in the cats or do they have sleds yeah all the above yeah. well they're they're getting rides uphill yeah um snowmobiles very often yeah. lately they'll hop in the snow cat with the guests usually there's no explosives on board <laughs> um but uh, snowmobiles a lot these days. On the big days, we'll sometimes have a support, even a driver, bumping that team around if it's like trying to get some quick laps. Sometimes we're shuttling our own sleds around. And mm-hmm. but uh, it's nice, but they get out there, um, try to get a lot of laps in on the big days. And so it sounds like you know, oftentimes I think about u- utilizing explosives as as more of a testing of your forecast. It sounds like you guys are both testing your forecast with explosives and doing some mitigation work for, you know, new snow instabilities, especially. Yeah, it's, it's a great question and statement is what, how are we using explosives? Why? And it's great, great early season questions. And we'll probably go there again in a month for early season training. And, uh, you know, we define several reasons. I think the number one reason is, you know, we put out a forecast and we, we follow a very standardized forecasting system, what a lot of operations are doing, especially following, you know, the work of Grant Statham, the conceptual model of avalanche hazard. And we're really, uh, really following pretty standard process. But at the end of the day, we all know there's uncertainty. Um, and if the levels of uncertainty are too high or, or too much, um, explosives are a great way to reduce that uncertainty. Mm-hmm. So we're loving to use, you know, ideally light shots, sometimes big shots, um, to really rule out that persistent slab problem or to say, yeah, is there persistent slab structures there? And many people in Colorado know it's always there, but hey, it's stubborn or it's unreactive. Um, and a lot of times we won't ski our steep terrain until we say it's unreactive and it's a big air blast. So mm-hmm. we really do use it to, to great, gain some confidence in our forecast. Other days, if it's, we're in a seven-day cycle, um, we'll go out there and throw hand shots, knock down, cornice, knock down, storm slabs um, to create a bunch of size 1, 1.5, instead of seeing the big slides three days later. So we'll play that game a little bit. And then we've been playing around a little bit with even um, using shots or cutting shots in half and doing a little bit of a – I can't remember the fancy name. Snowmass was doing it years ago, the kind of symmetrical approach uh, to breaking up – you know. A, a sheer plane within the snowpack of like mm. systematically using explosives down a slope. So we'll, we still talk about, you know, shaking it, not breaking it and seeing if putting big shots on early season will break up you know, drop the snowpack, collapse it, break up a sheer plane, you know, and that's more, uh, anecdotal type kind of things. We could scratch our heads up heads with. Sure. But, uh, yeah. Um, Billy, what's the most challenging part of your job? So you're the lead forecaster, and I, I think I read at the bottom of your email, maybe there's another title, risk management. Yeah, manager. the title changes. I'm still a snow safety director, and I'm operations manager as well and risk manager. So I oversee a lot of the bigger picture risk management pieces, not just in the avalanche world, but with medical stuff and rescue and uh, making sure we're set on a bigger picture. But, uh, yeah, so, you know, can't, managing guides, is like I said earlier, we all know it's, it's – it's tough, you know, guides, rightly so, I'm one of them. You know, we want we want everything. We want our cake and eat it too. And people want to, you know, they want full-time work, but they want to go on a two-week Canadian hut trip and pick up the week of work in Japan and then, you know, pick up some ice climbing work and still be full-time here. And, you know, and we try to, we try to accommodate that because, you know, keeping guides happy is key. And I'm really push hard for the guides to try to get more pay, more benefits, the diversity work. So probably managing guides is the most dynamic part of the job. Um, 
you know, long hours. Irwin's, you know, we're, we're commuting on snowmobile two times a day, 15-minute commute. Sometimes we're breaking trail 10 miles on snowmobiles in the dark. There's avalanche paths on our commute, so sometimes it's game on just getting to work. And and then uh, sometimes we're not getting back till 7 at night, so sometimes full 12-hour days and long hours. And, uh, you know, we ski plenty of good powder, but there's days where we're skiing big breaker breakable crests and mm-hmm. it's uh it's brutal on the body and those are the days where you wind up telling your friends we're not always skiing powder it's you know it's a pretty glorious job sometimes but not all the times and you know i've taken a couple rides and one big one over the years a few years ago and you know going out and doing explosives work and mitigation work is you know i'm not as willing to just jump in and put that big air blast on the slope as it was four or five ten years ago so you know those things are starting to grow on me a little bit as i kind of reevaluate what are appropriate levels of risk and exposure for myself. So, mm-hmm. you know, I think a lot of the classic challenges that uh, many avalanche professionals have gone through. And But uh, at the end of the day, we love it. And we all love it at the end of the day and wouldn't trade it for a thing. So Sure. You mentioned earlier that you have a 14-month-old kiddo now. And how has that, has that changed your risk tolerance? Uh, absolutely. You know, um, over the years, I've seen a lot of my friends go through the transition of uh, having children you know, whether it's children's a big one, you know, maybe it's taking a ride or watching a friend perish in, in an avalanche. Um, but having that kid definitely has been the biggest one for me. And, and it's partly just natural progression of getting older, too, of being on the downward arc of my, you know, bell curve, so to say, of risk acceptance. But uh, yeah, absolutely. I know every parent can relate to it. And even non parents, yeah, life has a bigger meaning. And, if it means getting a shot now instead of throwing that ski cut, I'll do that. If it means keeping it closed for an extra day, you know, I'm looking at the forest instead of the trees, you know. Mm-hmm. No one's going to lose their job or be pissed if it, you can't get there today. And so it definitely changed a little bit. And, yeah, I get a little more nervous, especially last year being my first year. It was a, it was a pretty mellow year, snow safety-wise, in Colorado or a lot of places in the West. But uh, so it wasn't that big of a year, but it's still running some routes and, with the kids, it's different. It's in your head, you know, when you're out there. So um, definitely changes. And, uh, you know, I think for the good, yeah, more balanced decision-making sure. keeps keeps the perspective a little better for sure. Yeah. Are you willing to share any of the stories of, of a close call or ride that you've taken? Yeah, absolutely. You know, over the years, I've done a lot of, I shouldn't say a lot, but a few small rides, you know, doing s- ski cuts on small terrain. But, uh yeah, the short story was, I think we were looking at four years ago. Um, my partner Megan and I were out. No guests up that day, so we were just out, and it had snowed about eight inches. And we were out um, ski cutting. Wind slab was our primarily avalanche problem that day, really the only avalanche problem. And, uh, you know, kind of hero ski cutting, eight 12-inch wind slabs, only propagating 20, 30 feet wide. And, you know, ski cutting, cutting out of it, and pounding, pounding it on the way down and high-fiving at the bottom kind of thing. And... We slowly moved up our terrain and got up into our higher alpine terrain. And we noticed it was windier up there. And the visibility, actually, it's orographic snows, which is very common for Irwin. We're kind of blew in. And it was, and, uh, you know, I was ready to go into a run called Lone Wolf, which is a big, you know, start, starting zones are 11, 8, and above tree line. And big funneled slope that gets heavily cross-loaded, big goalie-type feature. And I knew exactly where I needed to put that ski cut. I know the terrain really well. A little bit of... You know, familiarity, heuristic kicking in, and and Megan, you know, said no, let's not go. What are we thinking? Let's go grab some shots. You know, of course, 
in retrospect, I could hear her telling me, what are you thinking? Let's get out of here. Let's not do it. And I was just not listening at all. And uh, we went down and uh, put a ski cut in almost in whiteout conditions. And it was about five feet too low. And, uh, you know, fracture, wind slab fracture about eight feet above me, starting about 10 inches and propagated to about 30 inches. And uh, I almost got out of it, you know, throwing my elbows in, skis in, trying to push blocks aside. I was like two feet from the flank, uh, but it propagated behind me into that bowl feature and took the big ride, started to accelerate pretty quickly, fell the wave of snow, pulled my airbag pack, which we all use now on routes, and took a big ride, about 800 feet. Feet stayed below me, though I was probably moving, my guess is about 40 miles an hour. Went over a 10-foot rock band, definitely remember being in the air. Got dark a little bit, felt my knee pop, blew my ACL on the way down, and uh, wound up on top of the snow. Um, my, my skis were buried, I couldn't get up because my skis were kind of cemented in pretty quick. But was on top of the snow, very alluvial, you know, type run out, which was the train lended itself to. And, uh, you know, by the time I reached to my radio, Megan was like next to me, like got on me pretty quick, which was great, great to know. She was in a good spot and able to spot me. But uh, when she knew I was mostly okay, she started cursing at me. And, and I was able to hobble out there with a blown ACL, but, you know, I was flying right next to big rock bands and really rocky terrain. And so I feel pretty lucky that I got out of there with just a, a knee injury. But at the end of the day, yeah, classic lessons, listen to your partner, you know, stuff again I learned years ago, right? Um, listening to your partner, you know, n not underestimating the effects of wind, wind slab development, and, uh, and visibility was a big part of that. If, if it was clear out, it would have been a hero ski cut. I would have been five feet higher, and you mm -hmm. know, so that was my biggest one for sure, and, uh, you know, good learning lesson, and um, yeah, it was good. Yeah, I'm sure that's, it sounds like it stuck with you, and, and maybe perhaps was kind of one of the turning points into some of the thoughts about, you know, scaling back the risk tolerance, perhaps. Absolutely. And, you know, there's a slide um, that, you know, if you've hung out with Don Sheriff, he's again, one of my friends and mentors, and he presented to us a couple times, but the slide where he shows, you know, managing a lifetime of exposure, where he just shows this like wavy curve going up and down and basically confidence and avalanche train over time. And it's not steady. You know, we all have our ebbs and flows of where we're feeling high and mighty and we're just so confident because in our, in our world, we have to be confident to a certain level. And at the same time, we have to be humble and admit that we don't know. And we're always operating with uncertainty, but that event and that kind of knowledge of managing this lifetime of exposure really, really put in perspective of being able to identify now when I am feeling little overconfident and knowing when I'm down at the bottom going, okay, I don't know anything and really play it safe and just being able to recognize where you are on that ebb and flow kind of, yeah, you know, that's helped a lot. But that put me right back down to <laughs> the bottom and, had to, you know, climb out of that one for sure. But yeah, get yeah. back on the horse, so yeah, to speak. Absolutely. Any other, this is, a, there, there's some good nuggets in here. Any other um, advice you wish that you knew when you were a younger avalanche professional? Yeah, it's good. You know, when I'm when I'm reading up on, you know, hazard and risk, and like I, I, I I've read a conceptual model of avalanche hazard now, like probably two times through this season. I'm gonna read a few more, and you know, I, I could look back and think, you know, I was doing a lot of the right things for many years, but I didn't know how I was doing the right things. I just kind of was, and it's been really interesting to kind of backfill my career and go, God, I was doing things, but now I know why and hows and the kind of knowledge of, of how I manage risk. I've always managed risk to some level. I'm definitely getting better at it, 
but to understand the components of risk and exposure and vulnerability and the components of hazard. And it's kind of interesting. That's kind of stuff where, God, 20 years ago, um, it would have been really interesting to, to know that, you know, and some things I was doing well, some things maybe not. And again, like, you know, we were just dealing with the Avalanche Bulletin, high, low, moderate, likely, unlikely. And now looking at, you know, we've gone so far with just looking at Avalanche problems and the characteristics of those problems. It's, it's, it's interesting to see. And sometimes I'm jealous when some of these young kids and, you know, it's weird to say kids, but we got a lot of young people coming in who, you know, they're Avalanche one and two and they're pro one and pro twos now. I mean, they're doing stuff in their first few years as a professional that it took us 20 years to have that exposure to that high level of knowledge. So it's wild to see how much has happened in the avalanche world and people are, are, are getting pretty savvy quick, at least on the classroom side and the knowledge that it's still an experience. I wouldn't trade it for anything. The experience and years of some different applications is really valuable, but uh, you know, um, it's just interesting to see. So I guess that was kind of a convoluted way of saying, sure, there's looking at, looking forward and looking back is always super interesting. And um, yeah, it's a, it's, it's really fun fun to be able to look both directions. Yeah, there's certainly pros and cons to kind of the next generation coming up pretty quick with yeah. a little, maybe a little less experience, you know, but um, I think there's m more information out there for sure. You know? uh, absolutely. Yeah. The the starting point is just so much higher, yeah, you know, yeah. and my level one avalanche course was just like, yeah, just, you know, remember these 180 things. Good luck. And <laughs> we went out there with our heads just frazzled. And now it's like, different models of decision-making frameworks and tools and even just snow profiles and, you know, God, the extended column tests and propagation saw tests. Those are great tests that, you know, didn't come around for a while. Right. So it's, it's great. And it continues, you know, i just started reading a paper from the ISSW in Innsbruck. I was like, Oh man, this is every year. It's something new and more stuff to, to really uh, dive into. So. Yeah, absolutely. On the note of, of young avalanche professionals, how do you guys do your hiring? And you, you have like an intern program. I've always thought, of, especially an operation of this size, would benefit so much from both the interns would benefit and the company would benefit for cheap labor, really. Yeah, you, you know, know. There's so many people chomping at the bit for that experience. Absolutely. We've had a pretty successful internship program over the years. Um, some of our guides and managers and have been interns and uh and we have had some great luck of attracting really high caliber interns even even again this year um we put out a, a one paragraph ad in like the triple a and you know carl berkland's little email list he sends out for us and guy like 20 30 applicants within within a day or two and um and i'm blown away by the by the caliber of applicants and my first question with some interviews are like, are you clear that this is an internship? And I see five years of ski patrol experience and you got your pro two and your name, Jay Rock. Like, yeah, man, if, you know, they, they see the kind of caliber of our company and they're willing to maybe go there. And so, um, yeah, I think our biggest challenge is figuring out, is it, is it fair to offer the internship to a kind of a guide caliber type candidate who's looking for the in or is, you know, I feel like we've, we've turned down some maybe lower end not even lower end, but like more like actually real internship kind of candidates, but it's hard to say no to these people willing to kind of use that as a, a way in the door. And we are growing enough where, you know, the chance of being hired if, if they perform well is, is pretty high. And um, so, yeah, we've had some great luck and it is great exposure. And, and we do be, we are very careful too of like, 
not bringing them on as that free labor of saying, hey, they're not going to count to the ratio today. Um, they're third on slope. Mm-hmm. You know, ideally, again, our intern, they, they have to have at least a rec two um, and soon to be pro one and uh, and be a woofer. They're on slope. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, you know, we want to have. Yeah, they have to have our backs. Yeah. They have to be able to dig us out and be experts on avalanche rescue. Um, and sometimes they're not even introduced to the guests as interns. So mm-hmm. it's pretty high caliber. But uh, but we try to really treat it like an internship, not throw them to the throw them in into the the cauldron. And uh, you know they they do have a good learning platform. Occasionally they'll spend the day as a tail guide with that, not really as an intern, but usually we were aware of that. So it's, it's a solid program. And then again, ideally they can go in the backcountry, see some of our backcountry tours. They can go on avalanche courses and see how the education side works. And ideally maybe stick around for the summer too. So yeah, um, people really see that kind of year round opportunity or at least summer and winter opportunity. So it is nice. Yeah. So it's, it's a, it's a big part of our program, but we do tell folks over the years, you know, we, we get hit up, I get hit up and we pretty regularly from, the college graduate or the kid who gets out of their avalanche course saying, Hey man, I'm a good skier. I took my cord. You know, you need a guide. And, you know, I'm, I'm pretty nice. Sometimes too nice. Um, I'll spend like 20, 30 minutes on the phone with a young kid saying, Hey, here's your path forward. And, but I, you know, we say we're a company, a good company to, to, to be a guide and, and get work as a guide, not to learn to be a guide. So we mostly hire people who have worked as a guide other places and, mm-hmm. and hire pretty experienced folks, especially in the winter. Sure. We're looking for, you know, ideally a couple few years, at least um, making decisions in avalanche train, ideally professional decisions. So, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, we do have pretty high standards, but uh, we are attracting great people for sure. So how can folks find out more about the programs that you offer and you guys on social media? Yeah, we're, we've got a pretty good presence. You know, erwinguides.com is our website and, you know, 11experience.com is the hospitality side, which again, you can see our heli ski program in Iceland and some France stuff. So it's really fun. But, uh, and then, yeah, we're on Instagram and Facebook and, uh, we do a pretty good job, uh, getting our word out there. And, uh, yeah, it's a great, great operation and 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 really cool and we are uh we're great customer base but we are we're training a lot of professionals a lot of professionals come in the door obviously with avalanche courses and we do a lot of wilderness first responder courses and recertification courses through Knowles and sponsoring courses and uh, we do amj single pitch instructor courses and we sponsor a ski guide course every year or host it i should say and mm-hmm. so a lot of professionals have had great exposure to us as as not just taking guests out but uh but training other professionals over the years so it's a great network of people and we've uh over the years made great networking across across the professional industry of uh, having a lot of professionals interact with us and and we love it we're always open door to other professionals to come visit us and you know we're a young enough operation where you know, we're very confident and competent in what we're doing, but we've been doing it for eight, nine years, at least on the cat ski side. And, you know, we're not reinventing the wheel every year, but we're we're still tweaking and making it better. We're not like a 30, 40-year operation that's ingrained in, in what we've done. And we're psyched. If you're going to work for us or even visit us for a day, you're going to be asked to give us feedback and tell us what you think on an objective level and let us know how we could be doing better. And I think that kind of vibe and approach is really... Uh, is really nice and that's a big part of what i try to keep going for sure yeah it seems like it benefits the whole community yeah absolutely yeah, yeah we have a ski and boot packing program which is great so you know people can't a lot of locals can't afford a day of cat skiing hands down it's expensive and 
Um, but our scheme bootpacking program is awesome. We have about 120 people on an email list, and it takes about that many emails to get 10 or 12 a day because <laughs> um, people have winter jobs. But mm-hmm. you know, last last four or five years, even six or seven, we've had a very successful packing program. 12 to 16 days, sometimes 20 days of packing between late November, early January, and uh, boot and ski packing. They get to ride the cat for the most part. Sometimes we'll start on snowmobiles and we'll head up and you know march down slope. But at, at some point. You know, they're getting on their skis and skiing out. Some days it's pretty glorious. And, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, they get a day of cat skiing for every four days of volunteering. And uh, it's a pretty good program. So That's it does great. get a lot of locals up there. And the stoke's pretty high. Like our, and our packers are great. Um, they tend to be pretty highly educated. You know, it's not uncommon where we'll be ski packing down a start zone on rocks. And all of a sudden, one of my packers says, you know, hey, man, we're not penetrating anymore. It's time to go to boots. You know, I'm not getting that fast. And they were like, thanks. And, you know, they're making that call. And they get what we're doing. And, it's pretty cool. So that's a nice part of our program because, you know, like I said, not every local is just making it up cat skiing. Right. And, uh, so that's good. Yeah. Yeah, that's a nice perk if you're a Crested View local. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, Billy, I really appreciate you taking the time to sit down and um, super impressed with the operation you all have here. And, and Thanks, man. Um, yeah, it was nice to hear about some of your personal experiences as well. And and uh, it's a value to the community to hear those. So absolutely um, appreciate it. Yeah, pleasure. Glad to, glad to be part of it. Yeah, well, hopefully I'll, I'll make it out back out to Crested Butte in the winter and come skiing with you guys. Oh, uh, yeah, you're always welcome. All Say right. hey. We'll Cheers, do it on man. the slope. Yep, take okay. care. There you have it, folks. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I hope you really enjoyed it. We really couldn't do what we do without the support of TAS Gazex and 10 Barrel Brewing. Thanks for all you do and continue to do to make this show go down the road. Okay, maybe you're hitting the road and, and uh, you're all caught up with the Avalanche Hour podcast and you need some new material to fill the time behind the windshield. Uh, there are a couple other, few other podcasts that I've been really enjoying lately. In the last couple years, you know, Slide the Avalanche podcast with Doug Kraus has been a great resource that I've learned a lot from. And Doug, if you're listening, I hope you continue to put those out this year. Last year, the Utah Avalanche Center came out with their own podcast as well, um, hosted by Drew Hardesty. And I've been finding that one super helpful as well. So hopefully those guys crank that back up again this year. Some other skiing-related podcasts that I'd like to shout out to would be the low pressure podcast with mark warner based in whistler uh he's been doing this a while now i think this is season six for him so mark really appreciate what you're putting out there and um, a little bit less focused on the snow and avalanche side of things but certainly the ski culture as well as mike powell with the powell movement um always a pleasure to listen to that podcast and a new one I found through listening to the Powell Movement would be the Athletic Stance with Scott Chrisman. So those three are a little bit more skiing related, but all very well done. And, and just wanted to give a shout out to, to those guys shaping the craft of podcasting within the snow and skiing riding world. Big thanks to Mike T for the artwork. If you want to get some sweet graphic work done, Look up Mike, triple-dub-dot-mike-t, that's M-I-K-E-T-E-A.com. 
Also, check out my website. It's got some helpful links to good articles and resources to tune up your snow brain. You can also help support the show by ordering an Avalanche Hour ski strap or hat. Try and have some more merch coming in soon. Music today was Get Down by Grizz, featuring Sun Squabby and Manic Focus. Taking us out of the hour is Grammatic with Muy Tranquilo. Use of these tracks is made possible from the permission of the artists. You can check out more of their work on their websites, and there's a link to those on my website, www.theavalanchehour.com. Please rate and review us on whatever platform you're listening to this podcast on. And tell your friends about the podcast. We're getting a pretty good uptick in listener and, and plays and play counts for the podcast, and that's that really excites me. Um, if you like it, if you hate it, let me know. I want your feedback. This is your podcast. Please join the conversation. All right, until next time, stay tuned, stay safe, and keep having fun out there. Thank you.